Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Just for the apparel and footwear sector, it is between 4 and 8% of the total greenhouse gas emissions globally is coming from just this sector. One study had suggested that we are heading to a point where the apparel industry would take up over a quarter of the total global carbon budget. That's Maxine Beda, this week's guest author on the Postbooks podcast, talking about how fast fashion is killing the planet. Her book, Unraveled, took her from a cotton farm in the US to textile factories in China, to Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, where the garments were made, and finally to Ghana, where she saw our unwanted clothes being burned. She talks to me, Charmaine Chan, from her home in New York. I really like the way you structure your book. You take a pair of jeans and you unpick them, so to speak, to show their journey from life to death. I thought instead of going sequentially, I'd like to go backwards and start this conversation at the point where we do a Marie Kondo and we start weeding our unwanted clothes from our wardrobes. What happens to the clothes we give away? Take me through the process. Well, I'm happy you're starting there because that was actually the start of my own journey into all of this was just sitting in front of an overflowing closet and having this feeling like I had nothing to wear. And so that began this process of cleansing my closet of Marie Kondoing, as you said. And then I just kept going deeper and deeper into to what all of that meant. But when we donate our clothing or when we give it back to shops like Zara and H&M, what happens is if you're donating the clothing, the clothing will get sorted and there will be somebody in the store who determines whether that's something that might be sellable or not. That ends up being a much smaller percentage of clothing than we think. Of that percentage, that smaller percentage, uh, it goes on the, the shop floor and it's given four or five weeks on the floor to see if anybody is going to buy it. And then the stuff that does not sell ends up joining the stuff that was never put on the floor. And it then gets sorted again into either something that's going to be a rag that will be sold off as rags. That's usually like a stained cotton t-shirt, for example, that has to be a natural fiber to be used as a rag, or it will go into insulation, or the bulk of it ends up being sorted and that gets put in a bale. And then those bales get shipped around the world to 
areas of the developing world, it is then sold again, or it is attempted to be sold. What happens to clothing, of course, differs from place to place. So in Hong Kong, for instance, high street clothing chains also send what they receive to charities such as Redress and for research on recycling. In following the life cycle of a garment, Maxine Bedar went to Ghana where she found the final resting place for items that no longer spark joy. I went to Accra, Ghana, which is a very large secondhand market globally, one of the largest in Africa. And what we found there, the, the researchers who are doing the work there have found that a significant percentage, in this case, 40% of the clothing is never sold at all. And it ends up just becoming part of the waste stream in Ghana that actually doesn't have the capacity to handle it. So when I was in Accra, I went to go visit the landfill where the clothing that couldn't sell in the secondhand market ended up um, and it was on fire. Um, and the capacity of the landfill was full in half the time that it was expected, in part because of this inundation of all of our excess goods. We've just started consuming so much more clothing than we ever did before that there just isn't a market globally for our stuff. What happens is in Accra, the, the market is called Contamanto Market. The sellers open up their bale and they do a sort of the bale and they will divide things into three or four selections. And the first selection is what they will try to use to actually cover their costs. What I was seeing on fire was this third and fourth selection. What researchers are finding, though, is that this third, fourth selection, this kind of cast off quality that can't be sold either because it's not the right fit, you know, in the U.S. where we run a bit bigger. <laughs> if that gets um, sent to a place like Ghana, you're not going to find a market for, you know, XXL sizes or it's a silk top and silk doesn't work in a very hot, um, the hot season of Ghana or if the style isn't right. Those are the things that will end up just being thrown away. We have been trained to think that when we're giving it away, when you know we use the word donate, like it is we're bestowing something of value to somebody else. But I think we have to consider that if if we don't value it, who else is going to value it? And as we're buying this kind of lower and lower quality garments, they don't maintain value for anybody around the world. And they end up becoming, you know, another country's problem to deal with. You found challenges at every step of the journey of this pair of jeans, but production at textile mills seems to be the part of the process that requires the biggest overhaul. What happens at these mills? When we think about the climate impact of our clothing, the mills are really the, the hotspot. The best parallel I can think of is like uh, blow drying one's hair. Um, you know, think of like a really unruly mess of hair and the energy required to put all of those hairs in the same direction and have them silky and smooth. That's only the kind of first part of the process of turning this fiber into one continuous strand, spinning that fiber into yarn, weaving that yarn into a textile, dyeing that textile into whatever color we need, and then finishing it. All of these processes require enormous amounts of energy and several heated baths um, when we're talking about affixing dye stuff to a textile. And that is why when they, when they run the numbers, the mills really are the kind of the carbon hotspot. 
And just to put into context, just for the apparel and footwear sector, it is between four and eight percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions globally is coming from just this sector. That is more than France and Germany combined in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And because of this trajectory that the world at this moment appears to be going on with this kind of new disposable relationship with clothing, um, one study had suggested that we are heading to a point where the apparel industry would take up over a quarter of the total global carbon budget. I'd like to talk about what you saw at the Chinese factories that you went to. And are these figures so high, the figures that you just mentioned, because we're talking about largely fossil fuel powered manufacturing in China? It is the combination of the energy requirements at the mills themselves, and then what is powering that energy. Um, And because China is the predominant producer of the world's textiles still today. And China itself relies heavily on coal. That is the reason kind of combined that the apparel industry more broadly has such a large environmental impact. So you went to Guangdong and Shaoxing in Zhejiang province. What were you doing there? What did you see? (laughs) I was going to see what does a textile mill look like? And I wanted to compare both kind of what a, you know, a five-star facility might look like, but also what your not five-star facility might look like. In one, I could go and see the water treatment plant that was on site. It was very professionally run. But then when I went to um, a different facility where I wasn't uh, invited, (laughs) but I went, uh, people were not wearing masks. Chemicals were just sloshing on the ground. You know, I was lucky I was pregnant at the time. I did not want to stay in that facility for any length of time because of the fumes that I was inhaling. And I was lucky that that day I happened to be wearing rubber soled shoes because the chemicals really were just sloshing around on the ground. Um, And then when you went outside, just kind of tucked behind that facility was a river and you could just see the effluents going directly into that river, which was a pretty noxious smelling river. And then I walked along that river that was, I would say, a very dark, glistening gray. And there were farm plots along that river. And that was the water that was being used to water the plants in those farm plots adjacent. So, you know, the neighboring communities are then ingesting the chemicals that are going into these less than perfect facilities. When you talk about chemicals, were you talking about dyes that were being used to color the clothing or were you, were you still following genes and, and was it bleach that was being used to acid wash these genes? Yes, that was um, the facility that I was just referring to was a denim wash house. So it was the dye stuff going to to bleach and to put all the finishes on, on denim. And those are frequently carcinogenic chemicals that are being applied to the genes. And it was a, um, I saw it was a pink spray, which is um, this spray within the the denim finishing industry is known as a as a carcinogen, and um, you know there people were not wearing masks, and as I said, there was no water treatment that I um, that I could see, and just then seeing all those chemicals go into the river was disturbing. 
Let's talk about the process of making jeans look old. Didn't we used to call them stonewashed jeans because the denim was tortured with pumice stone? Yeah, um, and they now- still are. They still are. There's more chemical application, but I in the U.S., I went to um, a denim wash house in the U.S., and they still use pumice stones. And then I saw in the wash house that I visited, there was a big pile of um, pumice stone. So it's still... A oh. way of getting that sandblasted look, <laughs> but there are there are newer, more chemical treatment ways in addition as well. In your book, you say that textile production is now moving away from China to places where it's cheaper to produce these items. So Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Sri Lanka. What are your concerns about mm-hmm. these moves? The concern is that the industry is just moving to less and less regulated spaces. And I don't blame the countries themselves because the industry is creating these incentives for countries to compete on the lowest standards because the lower the regulations, the cheaper it is to produce. And and that is what we're seeing. So, you know, as China is wanting to clean up its environment, it's just moving to places, you know, with lower regulation. And so that really is the problem there. And and what I tried to get across in the book is that in the U.S., we had the same issue where we saw the chemicals of the fashion industry in our rivers, and we fought back and created institutions in the United States, like the Environmental Protection Agency, to stop that. But then what we've done with globalization is just outsourced, not just the jobs, we've outsourced the environmental footprint. So we didn't say, if you're going to produce, like, we have to produce all at the same environmental standard, we're just shopping around for the the lowest standard possible. And so that's really the problem when we're seeing production now in places like Vietnam, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, as you mentioned. Just going back to bleaches and other chemicals, one part of your book that I found really interesting is where you call for chemicals to actually be listed on labels, clothing labels. Are you saying, for instance, that our labels should read organochlorines for bleaches and pesticides and fertilizers? Is that what you're calling for? I don't expect that the average person who's purchasing is going to get a PhD in, um, in, in chemistry in order to understand their tags. I think um, the, the broader idea is more that we collectively and it's the, you know, the watchdog organizations that would use this information the most. But there needs to be some sort of oversight on the industry, on the chemicals that are being used in clothing, and I think most importantly, how they are managed. If we think about where the issue is the most urgent, it's the workers who are actually engaging with the chemicals, the surrounding community that then gets exposed to it through its fruits and vegetables. And then there is research being done on the chemical impacts to the actual wearers. And I I mentioned one study in the book on a chemical that has now been banned. You know, we tend to think of our skin as this impenetrable barrier, but the chemicals that rub up against it make it into our bloodstream. And the study was a demonstration just how persistent these chemicals can be in our body. And so we really have to have very clear oversight in chemical management. And and I think we have to take a slightly more precautionary role than we have in chemicals. Whereas right now, a company 
can produce a chemical and it is safe until proven not safe. Um, it is assumed safe, I should say, until proven not safe. And that is different than if a precautionary principle would be applied, which would be that a company has to prove that it's safe before releasing it into the market. So going back to labels, what would you like to see on clothing labels? In the moment, um, labeling is country dependent. In the United States, by law, it has to have a made-in label. That is just so misleading right out of the gate because clothing is very rarely produced in just one country. Um, you'll have your cotton from Texas. It will go to China to be converted into textile. It will go to Bangladesh to be cut and sewn. It will be sold somewhere else. So I think clarifying that just to give consumers clear information of where their garments are coming from and just how many resources are actually being used to create the garment will give a clear indication for consumers of the, the value that they should place in the thing that they are purchasing. I think kind of clear labeling is important. I think even more important than clear labeling is the regulation behind it so that the consumer doesn't have to get a PhD and no trade history and chemistry in order just to make a single purchase. So when you yourself buy clothes, that's if you still buy clothes, what do you <laughs> <still> avoid? <laughs> what do you avoid buying? I really have tried to understand what it is that I really like. And that is not an obvious thing. I think we are sold a lot of messages of what we are supposed to like. I remember I would buy kind of emotionally and it wasn't about what is actually going to be useful in my own day-to-day -day life. Um, and so now I think I spend more on each individual piece, but it's going to be something that I know that I'm going to have for a long time. One of your chapters is about middlemen. And you focus on Lian Fung, which is headquartered in Hong Kong. So readers here will probably <laughs> smirk at your comment. I bet you've never heard of them because <laughs> Hong Kongers will have heard of them. <laughs> now, they um, optimize each production step. So, you know, for the big companies, Walmart, uh, Coach, Calvin Klein, et cetera. What is wrong with that? What I'm seeking to demonstrate with um, diving into the the origin story of Lian Fung is not about Lian Fung or about middlemen. What I was seeking to demonstrate is that clothing companies have lost control and lost insight into their own supply chain. That is really what I was trying to get at. And um, Lian Fung happens to be the biggest of these agencies, so that was why they were highlighted. That was really the was the demonstration of how the industry went from the factories themselves were the ones that would start the brands to brands selling off their factories, having nothing to do with their factories. Then we see the sort of sweatshops deregulation, kind of that evolution happen because they have purposefully lost touch with their supply chain. So that that was what I was seeking to demonstrate through the discussion of Lian Fung. You yourself began as an entrepreneur in 2013. You started Zadie, which was a fashion company that was called the poster child of the ethical fashion movement. But that company is no longer around. Was that because it was ahead of its time? 
It was a very personal decision to move away from Zadie. We were definitely on the early side, I think, when people didn't have any understanding of what the impact of the industry uh, was. We were getting these much clothing companies much larger than ours reaching out to say, thank you so much. You know, we would put at Zadie, we would put out kind of very superficial information about the industry that we know that we were picking up. And and these very large brands were reaching out to say, thank you so much for putting this out. It's really helpful for me and my team. And that was very shocking to me at that time. I didn't realize, I thought that that it was consumers, that it was, you know, your average person that didn't know the impact of the industry. I wasn't aware that um, or those comments helped me understand that the industry itself didn't really understand its own impact. And so that was the decision for me. I got into this industry. I'm a lawyer by training. I got into this industry um, because I saw the role it plays in the world. And what I realized is if I was really trying to make an impact, and that was really what was driving me, selling more clothing wasn't going to be it no matter how you know beautifully it was produced. And now you helm the New Standard Institute. Can you tell me what that does? Basically, we have brought together uh, researchers from around the world and not just researchers, but people in the field, factory owners, garment workers, farmers, secondhand clothing sellers. It's a kind of a marriage of the academic community that is working in different parts of this with the the people um, actually on the ground who have the on the ground experience. What we um, seek to do is present clear information, the clearest that is available on the impact of the industry, and then use that information to then try to drive change within the industry. The sustainable conversation within the fashion industry has been largely led by the industry itself. It hasn't been the scientists, the voice of the scientists and the researchers. And so that's what we're really trying to do is elevate the voice of the scientists who are actually doing the research and trying to guide a meaningful conversation that isn't Pollyannish, that isn't aspirations of what sustainability is and what do we need to change in order to have a fashion industry that can thrive within the bounds of the planet. You zoom in on polyester in the book, saying it was a poster child for modern fashion in the 1950s and pointing out that in just one generation, we went from closets full of things that came from farms like linen, cotton, wool, to wardrobes full of these textiles made of fossil fuels. Can you tell our listeners why not polyester? I think just to note the remarkable shift that that is, I mean, for millennia, we've dressed ourselves in a certain way. And within about a generation, that way in which we dress completely changed without much recognition, I think. So I, I, I just wanted to note that sort of enormous sea change. You know, the thing to note with polyester is that it is a fossil fuel based fiber and it's a plastic and all of the material, every plastic that has been produced, all of that clothing fiber that has ever been produced is still with us today. It's a very hard genie to put back in the bottle. 
And there are there are no at the moment scalable technologies to convert a polyester fiber into a polyester fiber again. So there isn't a natural way to break down this material. The clothing fibers, when they're doing the research on plastic pollution, it's clothing fibers that are the majority of these microplastic fibers that they're finding. This microplastic pollution is coming off of clothing in the industrial washing and then when we wash it in our own homes. These fibers are too small for the filtration systems within water, you know, kind of local water treatment plants. And so they are just entering into our waterways. And that's becoming a problem because the fish are eating the plastic and there's bioaccumulation of the plastic in the fish. Um, It's changing fish reproduction. And we're also eating these fibers when we eat the fish. You might have people who champion polyester because it adds durability to a fabric. A piece of clothing is going to last longer. You don't have to iron it. It's mold resistant. There are pluses in adding polyester to natural fibers. What we just need to do is go in with eyes wide open. You know, I can concede that I would prefer to have a synthetic swimsuit than a wool one. (laughs) But it has become such a dominant fiber in things that really don't need it, you know, like a a sundress, um, that it's just, you know, that the primary reason is because it's cheaper. We need to at least be aware of the unintended consequences of that use and then decide whether being wrinkle resistant is worth having oceans where there's more plastic than fish in it. Maxine Bedder author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Apart from questioning the excessive use of polyester in our clothing, she worries about social media and its influence in persuading some of us to think it's a fashion faux pas to be seen or photographed in an outfit more than once or twice. We're just constantly exposed to these cues that we should be buying new things um, and then you get these surveys. They were out of the UK. There hasn't there hasn't been enough research in this area of young women that feel that if they're wearing their clothing more than twice, that it's somehow socially unacceptable. That is incredibly dangerous on so many levels. It's dangerous for you know the planet and its resources, and it's really preying on young women. And this started very early on. It, it started in France with the Sun King. It was his government that created clothing seasons, which didn't exist before. And that was as an economic driver so that people felt they had to replace their wardrobe every season. And that was how France developed. It's a very purposeful thing, this notion of disposability as an economic driver, but it has an, you know, enormous unintended costs. I guess we're going to have to come up with a new word for fashion, (laughs) Because fashion is all about planned obsolescence, isn't it? It it is. And and I don't like I I think there is it's still okay that clothing evolves and styles evolve over time. It's the disposability that we started since the rise of H&M and Zara and Shein. Like it's that it's that level of disposability that is so problematic. I don't say in the book, stop buying things. I say love your things because we don't even know what we like. We've been pushed all these messages. Um, And I think if we start exploring really what makes us happy and the products in our lives that are really going to make us happy, that will slow us down. 
Let's end with a 2030 wardrobe. What's in it? So I think when I, you know, imagine my wardrobe of the future, it's pieces that I really love that fit my body, that make me feel good, that give me that armor for my day and present the image that I want to present. It will be made from natural fibers, made from regenerative practices that mean that the garment is going to exist within planetary bounds, using resources at the same speed in which the planet can replenish them. I think about how that clothing will then be produced in textile mills running on solar energy or running on green energy, where the chemicals have been managed. And then when I no longer need the garment or it doesn't fit my lifestyle, I know that I've purchased something that is of higher quality, so it will continue to have value for others and that there will be a thriving secondhand market full of quality garments where creative people, more creative than myself, can use that material to create something new and interesting and exciting. You've been listening to Maxine Bedar, author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. I'm Charmaine Chan, and this has been the Postbooks Podcast. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.